Chapter 34, Part 2 Within a few hours, the village would have a mind of its own. It was a tightly packed organism, weaving in chaotic patterns, picking at the offerings, feeling loose and ready for surprises. The atmosphere in the belfry had spilled onto the street. A beery pall hung over the hundreds as they inched from stall to stall, bunching either side of the maypole, crowding up the steps of the church. There were hoots of hilarity across nodding heads, agonized laughter here and there, a crazy barking dog, and a distant football chant breaking out of the murmur every so often. Unknown faces outnumbered the rest. The only place with room to stand was where the hired ponies had left their stacks of dung. It was a mixture of weather-beaten farmers from further afield, casting a critical eye, families from the surroundings desperately trying to cling together, bikers in hand-painted leathers and fuck-you faces mixing with a number of the well-to-do, making a day of it in their finer garments. Car parking in the locality had become untidy and anger-driven. They'd come from every direction, drawn there by word of mouth, plus the hint of something archaic in the spring celebration. By early afternoon, any normal child would have been crying and exhausted. But the prospect of more to come was too alluring for the heaving thing, with a mind for boozy fun. When the Morris men marched through, the throng wedged itself apart. It made room for itself, many of its numbers swirling on their tiptoes. The nine men and four boys came along with their faces smudged in black shoe polish. They wore scruffy hats with trailing green ribbons, and brown leather jodhpurs, and dark grey jackets with nothing but string vests underneath. Their heavy, hobnailed boots clicked as they danced to a chorus of encouragement from the crush, not to mention cries of abuse from tightly knit packs of youths. The wedge was widest around the maypole, where the dancers had taken to clacking their sticks to the tune of an accordion played by a large man wearing an eye patch. Teresa was too preoccupied to watch. Standing next to her sales booth with its splendid tiled roof and Jamie's half-hearted sign hanging cockeyed at the front, she made minor alterations and shouted for the bravest to come forward, step right up. She loved the circus ring sound she was making, really getting into the mood, telling everyone all the nasty things they could do to clobber the clown when the time came. She'd put Anya in charge of tickets. Anya was sitting inside the stupid booth with her perfect frown and too much mascara, taking everyone's money, but not taking any hassle from the men, let alone the boys. By this time, there was quite a queue of them, stretching and bending, clearly looking forward to having their fun. After lunch, the winners of the raffle would be announced. These were the lucky three who would be allowed to chase after a costumed Rodney figure armed with buckets of water and sponges. But where was Rodney? Teresa grabbed Jamie's shoulder as he wandered by. She turned him towards her. We've got to find Rodney, she said. From Jamie, she got nothing but a dumb stare. Go find Rodney, please, she said. See if he's back from the garage. Tell him to hurry. The dumb stare seemed to understand. He moved off, slowly at first, slipping between a family of people with ginger hair and a crusty-looking traveler with years-old dreadlocks and no shoes. 
After another quarter of an hour of waiting, Teresa could only despair. Rodney was meant to have been in costume by now, squeezing through the crowd with his red nose on, doing what he did best, annoying everyone. For a moment she felt her sense of humor trickle back as she thought of Rodney being annoying with a big red nose. She thought of Barry at the same time, who would never have volunteered to do such a thing. It occurred to her fleetingly that she would never get used to Barry's disappearance, that he would always come back to haunt her. She realized that every time she thought of Rodney, the specter of Barry would loom up, along with a bitter guilt she could almost taste. Only this time, on this spectacular day, it seemed a revelation to her, quite astonishing, the idea that Rodney figure might occupy the space that Barry had left behind. It was a deeply private concession that caused Teresa to shake her head visibly, just as Anya came along. What's got into you? Nothing. Where's Rodney? Anya wondered why her mother was so on edge. I can't believe he's so late, Teresa said. Anya couldn't have cared less. I've sold all the tickets, she said. I want to have lunch. They could hardly hear each other over the amplified accordion and all the good cheer. Teresa looked right and left until Anya fell away too, into the sea of it, before her mother could make her do anything else. Tell Jamie to get back here, Teresa called out, but Anya didn't hear, or pretended not to. It was another hour before Rodney finally showed his face, and then he stole the show. He had a weird-looking mask on. At first, Teresa couldn't believe it was him, getting up to such antics, wearing a tight red top and polka-dot shorts, way too big, and bells round his ankles so people would turn and gasp when they heard him coming. It was Rodney, all right, but he was pinching bottoms, nudging backwards into groups, and blowing his whistle in the ears of those who didn't know he was right behind them. It had to be the mask, Teresa reckoned. The mask brought to mind something she'd heard on the radio, about how different masks can affect an actor's performance in different ways. This one was making Rodney behave like a devil. It covered half his face, not really a clown's face at all, more like a Venetian ball mask, with slanted eyes and purple streaks across the cheeks, and a snarly laugh coming from the devil's mouth that infected almost everyone. He moved quickly along the street, with great loping strides, and a bunch of kids running after him. When he came near, blowing his whistle, licking his lips, Teresa caught her breath and felt herself go out to him. They'd booked a mayor for the proceedings. He was a short and pleasantly overweight man, dressed in a suit that didn't fit well, and only a few strands of hair left to cover his broad pate. He wore the clumsy gold chains of his office, weighted over his shoulders. A few medals dangled from his jacket pocket. After a lunch of jumbo sausages and a few too many jugs of cider, this tipsy official was pushed onto a podium and told to announce the winning numbers for the sponge-throwing fiasco coming right up. Clobber the Clown had swiped a handbag from someone and was trying to escape a small posse of revelers hot on his heels. He beat his way through shoulders to get closer to the Honorable Mayor so he could hand the stolen article up to him. On managing this, Rodney turned to his pursuers. It was him, he shouted. It's him you want, not me. But there wasn't a hope in hell if Rodney was flagging and thought he could get away with it. Three sets of numbers were duly slurred out. Two blokes and a bloke S stepped forward, rubbing their hands. 
they would spearhead the movement to give Rodney a hard time. This kind of revelry only added fuel to the fires of abandon. The celebration seemed to rise even higher. It soared into the final part of the day. Word was spreading that the police had made arrests after a fight with bottles had broken out in the field where the cars were. The ambulance crew was kept busy with a stream of young and old, either flopping under their own exhaustion and dizziness or just plain soused. It was an atmosphere that would get thicker by the minute, something tangible and growing. Now there was vandalism. Windows were being broken. There were reports of pickpockets in the throng. There were angry shouts to be drawn to. But a May Day Fair was the best and most tolerant place for all this too. The show had to go on. The thing itself, with all of its complexity and energy, was having too good a time to be stopped or quelled by a few stroppy delinquents. The fair would devour all of this in its stride and only shifted and broke into its ultimate pieces when the moon came out and it got too cold to stand around. By then, Teresa Heller's worst nightmare had come alive. So roused by the fun and forgetting herself, even joining in the drinking, she realized at some point that she'd lost track of her children. She tried calling, but neither of them answered their phones. She began to ask around, grabbing everyone she recognized. She thought she spotted Jamie and ran at the boy, but he was nothing like Jamie when she got closer. Earlier, Rodney Figure had made himself scarce, the worse for wear, so he couldn't be relied on for assistance. She called her house phone. She rang their mobile numbers again and again. Increasingly frantic, Teresa kept asking anyone she could call her, but no one had seen either of her children for hours. It was beyond trivial. Once she checked her empty home in a frenzy, this couldn't be ignored anymore. A buzz went out to the stragglers in the village. They quickly formed a search party, pressing round corners, looking into sheds, inquiring at the belfry, but there was no trace at all. Not until Louise Cratchit thought to look behind the church and found Anya sitting deep in the graveyard, shivering and smoking a cigarette, and what a relief it was nothing worse than that. But Jamie was still gone. It was very late, and sooner or later someone would have to call the police. Chapter 35 The wonder at being alive had begun to lose its gusto for me. From the gale of those first days, it was more a gentle breeze by the time my physical condition had begun to improve. I was left with a cast on my arm, painful swelling here and there, and a limp I didn't think I'd ever get rid of. I had sessions with physiotherapists to look forward to. That broke the tedium of the day. They were friendly and easy-going. They all seemed to have a highly developed professional resilience, because I really was beginning to lose my light-headedness by then. I couldn't stop staring at the bruises over my body. 
My greatest motivation to walk was to be able to examine the ones I couldn't see unless I used a mirror near the kitchen at the entrance to the ward. Flowering at my larynx and spreading around my neck was a gruesome yellow and black ring with flecks in it I guessed would burst blood vessels. I thought my brain must be yellow and black too, the way I was feeling. They weren't giving me morphine anymore. No matter how hard I tried to put the nurses off, they remained wonderfully impervious to my newfound dislike of them. Always mentally trying to grab Marie out of thin air, at the same time I worried about the strangeness of her being with me so suddenly, and then gone. I worried mostly about the woman who had called her. It was easy enough for me to guess who she might have been, and to speculate wildly about my own guesses, and then to suffer inwardly. In the midst of this turmoil, I taunted myself even more simply by recalling Marie's features and her expressions. In those recollections, Jacob's little gaze would sometimes emerge, easily morphing into the beauty I imagined Izzy might be these days. Antagonizing myself in this way dragged my aspirations downwards, subtly shifting them towards the uninhabited island I'd always been stranded on. On that desolate shore, my wife and children could only ever be the outlines of a ship too far away to hear my cries for help. I needed to shout at my self-pity, but the effect was paralyzing. After a while, it wasn't the pain anymore. It was these most hidden groans that froze me to my hospital bed. To others, it might have looked as if I was simply languishing. To me, it was as if the most extraordinary treasures had been washed up in the waves, and all I could do was hoard them in the sand and hope to be rescued as my horrid reality interposed. I began to tell the nurses I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to talk. Nor did I want to have to read their disguised expressions of dismay. I didn't want visitors. I was lost in myself and had every intention of staying that way. I didn't even want to look at anyone. I must have been at my lowest ebb when the person I didn't want to look at the most turned up on the ward. He was always going to show his face. When he eventually did, I was gazing at the lines of my palms, already aware something else unwanted was about to happen. His voice came first. It re-entered my consciousness with a fanfare of gloomy dislikes. I kept my eyes low. Antony Bride's greeting brought up a blunt pain I'd forgotten since all the new ones took precedent. Suddenly it was there again, pulsing away, as soon as he stood over me and said, Otto, you look the picture of health. I am relieved. I acknowledged him with a nod, but didn't look up. I could picture him clearly enough, always in the same dark suit, a face like a pillow with a blotch on it where the mouth should be. I like to call him Ficker because it seemed to offend him. Hello, Ficker, I said. Nice of you to pay a call. The nurses tell me you'll be out of here in no time. He pulled up a chair. He had an envelope in his hand. He placed it on my side table. I knew instantly that everyone had been forced to sign a Get Well Soon card. He confirmed it. You've been sorely missed, Otto. No doubt my tormentor enjoyed whatever signs of distress I could offer him. I cocked my eye at him. His lips might have twitched. 
I wouldn't have called it a smile. In the nine years I'd worked for him, I'd seen Bride overexcited, often angry, and I'd seen a vanity in him to match my own, but I'd never really seen him smile, not genuinely. So do we know what happened? he asked. I closed my eyes, still not ready to look at him for any length of time. I told him I didn't remember anything about it. I went out for a wander on a beach when I was attacked, I said. My guess is he raised his eyebrows. Someone struck me from behind with something painted green, I explained. They found flecks of green paint embedded in my skull. Bride was probably frowning now. And this someone? When I opened my eyes again, it was to look at my upturned hands. It had become a habit over the hours to stare at my big empty hands. I didn't fuss with the meanings or interpretations of all the prominent grooves scored along my palms, all the little breaks and nicks in the skin. I simply found it comforting to look at them and to have nothing in particular to hold. Each time I stared in this way, I was putting myself into my hands, like a spell, probably to protect myself from returning too wholeheartedly to the person I'd always been. This someone, Bride repeated with the inflection of a statement. I nodded, chewing my lip. Did you tell the police who it was? he asked. Not yet, I said. I was still nodding, nodding too much. I had to make a conscious effort to stop nodding. Bride, on the other hand, relaxed. He kept his voice quiet and taut for the purposes of our conversation, but felt comfortable enough now to adjust his waistcoat. Producing the bitter squint that passed on his small mouth for a smile, he said, Your client is devastated about all of this. I tried to push away from the drowsy depression hanging over me that would have been bliss otherwise. I knew that what Bride was saying was important for my future. What he was saying was that anyone familiar enough with the kind of convictions the fellow has might have guessed what was going to happen next. Nevertheless, I can assure you, Otto, even he didn't mean for it to go quite this far. Did he do it himself, or did he get some other thugs to do it? The thing to understand is that he expresses his genuine remorse. He's prepared to let bygones be bygones. When all is said and done, he likes you. Which is why he got his bimbo to ring my wife, he was genuinely concerned. I'll bet he was. As we all are, Otto. This is a delicate situation, to say the least of it. The many elements of my spoiled life were shifting back into focus. All at once I recalled how I'd met the lovely Shanice, how we'd flirted disinterestedly, and how we'd gone for a drink one day after work. I recalled how I'd been attracted to her because of the way she laughed, and also because of the way she winked. I recalled the fling we'd had, which lasted for a matter of hours, and how the mechanics of it was quickly overtaken by the possibility that Shanice's long-term minder, ever since she'd left school to be a hairdresser, would ruminate and react with extreme violence, even if I was his solicitor. It had all been an impressively stupid mistake. The person I didn't want to be anymore had a pronounced weakness for the dance of beauty women can perform for men, as well as the promises that appeared to go hand in hand with that dance. 
I could still hear Ficker Bride expressing his grave concern. After all, Otto, the solicitor's rules are what they are, and our clients are what they are, bless them. We need to examine this problem from every perspective, don't you think? I could hear the man, but I couldn't listen to him. The more I stared into my hands, nodding away, the more it felt I was falling into a stupor, hoping to be lifted from the murky places I'd inhabited to an altogether brighter and more peaceful setting. Somewhere far behind me, my employer was suggesting that I might well take the moral high ground. I had every right to approach the police and make a complaint about my wayward client, but the consequences may not be to my advantage. I might have to be suspended from my activities, he explained, while the regulator investigated whether or not my fling with a client's wife amounted to a conflict of interest so serious that disciplinary measures would have to be taken. On the other hand, Bride mused, and I listened carefully to this, we could let sleeping dogs lie. What he meant was that I could continue to represent my client as diligently as I liked. After all, he was a prize catch who was on Crown Court bail, having pleaded not guilty to being in possession of ten kilos of Class A drugs with intent to supply. It was a multi-handed indictment, and would end up being a lucrative case for the Ficker's coffers. Effectively, my employer was there to pass on a cleverly wrought message from the delectable Shanice's admirer. A bruiser we'd been acting for since he first began his notorious rise in the youth courts. Bride was hoping, of course, that I would make a speedy recovery after which I could return to my desk and secure that prodigious legal aid payment for his firm, as long as I didn't point the finger of blame at the drug dealer who'd tried to kill me. I really do think it would be for the best, Otto, he concluded, at his most conciliatory now. I mean to say, you should count yourself lucky. You might accidentally have nobbled the fiancé of somebody who didn't matter quite so much, and then you would be in a pickle. Sleepy again, I turned to face him. It probably appeared as if I was on sedation, but I felt quite lucid. I needed to stop this man from uttering my name quite so often. My look must have alarmed him. He wrinkled his nose, as if he could smell something off-putting. Do you know what I think, Ficker? I mused. I decided to go on a short rant with him. I think life is a pool of water. He looked at me blankly. It felt as if I were hovering above him. It was peaceful there. You can color the water with any dye you like, I said. It's when you color it with sex that odd things happen. Antony Bride's face got smaller and smaller. For a few moments I was in the thick of an incantation about something I longed to expel, but had never been able to. It's in the care you take in picking through your appearances, I said, in making your voice sound more attractive, displaying your sense of status. Think about all those glances at women you don't know, but you take the glances away with you, and you manipulate them so that each time it happens again, it looks more and more like the color of sex. This may be the genetics of love, my dear Ficker, I said but love is so rarely present when it comes to the more lurid shades. Pride was on his feet now, 
He was stretching the cuffs of his shirt so that they were just visible beyond his jacket sleeves. He was grooming himself, waiting to make a polite exit. It happens to the best of us, Ficker, I rambled. It's the biggest buzz there is. It's the stuff families are made of. I think I've come to accept my grave mistakes, and I'm hoping that from now on there will be different colors in the pool of water I see life through. So rest assured, you have my full cooperation as far as my impetuous client and his dear flame are concerned. As long as we understand one another, Pride said, mincing the muscles in his tiny mouth. He saw himself out. By the time Dr. Addis came to do her round, all that was left of Antony Bride was a nasty afterthought. I must have appeared despondent. The doctor seemed to understand and gave me generic advice about recovering from a coma. We find that some patients can experience low moods, she said. It's a difficult transition, psychologically as well as physically. If you need to talk, we have excellent people I can refer you to. She remarked that on the whole she was pleased with my progress. It might cheer you up to know I'm thinking of discharging you, she said. Her presence did nothing to calm me. We talked about the weather, the clearing rain. She had hazel-brown eyes and a contented way of saying things.